So a few years ago, uh, I had this long stretch of really uh, a lot of discomfort in my like in my spine, in my back, like upper, like thoracic, kind of cervical spine area. And it was really, really bugging me for too long. So I, you know, went straight to Google. I was like, what should I do? And, and one suggestion that I that I hadn't ever done or experienced before was to go see a chiropractor. And so you know, looked up my insurance. It's covered. Okay, give it a shot. So I went into a chiropractor in my neighborhood, had a consultation, and I ended up seeing this particular chiro chiropractor for a few months. And in our consult, he was telling me, like, oh, you definitely need help. Like, you're, you're not in good shape. Like, you should definitely do appointments with me. And he said, you know, like, just see for yourself. When you get home, have your wife take pictures of your back, and then you, you'll see what I'm talking about. And so that's what I did. And so before... Um, I sh we show you the picture. Uh, I 99% sure the first one. Yeah. So because of the screen in the room, you can't see anything, huh? So just because I knew this was going to happen, Johnny, can you put the next one? This is what my spine looked like. <laughs> yeah, I was sure that nobody would be able to see it. Uh, the room's too big. Lights are too bright. But if you go on YouTube, you'll see the picture because it's you know on a screen. This is the way that my spine was. I, I just colored over the line that you can see the bumps of my, all the vertebrae going in wacky directions. So the chiropractor was explaining to me how our spines actually get misaligned all the time. It's actually li very likely that yours is not perfectly straight, like right now. And it's not odd, it's not abnormal, it's very normal, it's very healthy. We're frequently getting misaligned, but. 90 to 95% or above of the time, you never notice because the misalignment is very minor and our bodies are healthy enough to just reset on its own. You'll never notice that it happened and you'll go back to being your spine being straight. The times where it's important for someone to see a chiropractor or a professional, the 5% of the time or so, when we need intervention, it's when a, some, some sort of trauma has misaligned you enough that your body can't do that at its own. It won't reset naturally. So things like major like, you know, injuries or people very frequently go to a chiropractor after a car accident because of you know, the whiplash. Some people go because of chronic ailments, whatever. The big things that happen in life where you need external intervention, someone's help to actually straighten you out. So chiropractors will do, you know, the crunching adjustments. I don't know if some of you listen to that ASMR stuff on YouTube. You're weird if you like that. And use different tools to get everything in order. See, I believe that our spiritual health goes through a very similar pattern. 90, 95, 99% of the time, very high percentage, we're misaligned. Something is a little off or maybe a little funky but it's completely normal. It happens to every single one of us. Some of you right now might be a little bit off spiritually, but you don't really notice and time kind of heals and your body, your spiritual body is healthy enough to reset and make your spine straight. But there's five, 10%, 2% of the time where you undergo enough spiritual trauma that time is not going to do the trick. You're not gonna heal on your own. We need actual intervention from something or someone else. And when I think about what's happened in the past couple of years, I imagine most of us, I, I'm going to guess, are limping around with major misalignment in our spiritual spines and our spiritual bones, aching, sore, just bruised up, what feels like, like just car accident after car accident after car accident. COVID, boom. Like the election, boom. 
all these major church celebrity pastors failing, like major, boom, and just over, our church shutting down, not being able to see each other, boom, boom, boom. I think that's all of us, most of us. We've gone through so much trauma that we need something else, something to intervene, to bring us back to center. So in these few sermons that we called Reconstructing Faith, we've mentioned this past couple weeks, we're not necessarily giving a manual of how to rebuild, how to get healed. But what we are doing is just spending 20, 30 minutes on a Sunday morning meditating on a particular passage of Scripture that keeps us tethered to God when we most need it. Scriptures that keep us centered. Scriptures that act as an anchor for our soul when faith is hard, it's confusing, scary, maybe doubtful. You wonder whether you even really believe in this stuff. So today's passage we're turned to is, you know, one of those. And what we're going to meditate on is, is actually a sermon. This passage that we're going to read is a sermon. It's a sermon preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And it's regarded as the one of, if not the most famous and most powerful, powerful sermons ever preached in human history. This passage, this sermon from Peter, is one that I have needed like all my life and will continue to, and that I believe that all of you need in your life as well. Especially, especially when we're off, when we're misaligned, and we need something to just, you know, crack, like crack us back into center. And so we'll turn to Acts 2 and read this. Acts 2 sounds really familiar, right? Because in July, Pastor Eugene preached four weeks on the, the ending of Acts 2. This is the middle of Acts 2, starting from verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father. The promised Holy Spirit was poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not send to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off 
for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how many of you reading that, or as I just read that, would think, oh my goodness, definitely top three, top one sermon ever I've ever heard in my life. I mean, maybe the, English, the, the language is a little old, but some of you, I mean, if it were me and I were saying, I'm like, ah, that was kind of boring. What was so powerful about this particular sermon? How did 3,000 people repent and get baptized and saved after hearing this message? So as I was thinking about this this week, it really put in perspective for me what we think of when it comes to God's word and how we typically feel, oh, I need to be fed. What criteria we believe makes a good message that's for me. Because the power of this message that Peter just preached, it seemed to have nothing to do with what I expect to be a good sermon. Right? Let's think stylistically. Sometimes we think, oh, the preacher has to be either really funny and engaging or it's super duper smart. That's a good preacher. I don't think Peter was either of those things. In fact, he probably wasn't very intelligent. Maybe it's the calming, relatable voice that's soothing or booming, fist-pounding conviction. Maybe it's personality shining through, oh, that preacher's so reliable, uh, relatable or charismatic or excellent public speaking skills and illustrations. Peter didn't use any. Maybe the production quality. If you have good cameras and a nice stage and a great auditorium. I don't even know how 3,000 people heard Peter without a microphone. Maybe the content, good preaching, a good message, being fed in my soul, it means those who can really explain the tough theological questions and help me understand it. Or good application points so that I know on Monday when I sign into work how to apply what was just preached. Or those who are really good at addressing the hot button issues of the day. Because that preacher, oh, they're, they're in tune with the times. They know how to equip us. See, Peter did none of those things. Yet 3,000 people were saved that day, but if we just do the really easy logic, that sermon led to the transformation of the entire world. Millions of people ended up being saved. So why was it so powerful? I think we know the answer. It's because he preached the good news. He preached the gospel. Peter's sermon, if we reread it, it was this. Jesus rose, Jesus I mean, died, sorry, he died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead, victoriously defeating death, and Jesus is Lord, turn your heart to him. That's all he said. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus rose, defeating death, and Jesus is Lord, and he is reigning. Give your heart to him. That's it. The reason why I bring this up, the reason why I chose this passage in this particular sermon series of scripture, we need to tether ourselves when we are either deconstructing or reconstructing faith, when faith is confusing and blown up and I don't know what to do, why this passage is because I feel when we have upheaval in our faith, whether it's, oh, I'm spiritually dry or I feel a little bit of a funk, all the way to, I don't know if there's a God in this world and everybody in between, We've got to hear the gospel being preached to us. We've got to hone in on this message, not the complications of faith, 
the centrality, the simplicity, the number one thing of our faith. And everything hinges on this. Everything in your, do I, am I a Christian? How do I live this Christian life? Hinges on Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus reigns, and he promised to come again. It's crucial to whether you have anything to reconstruct at all. If I were to do a renovation on my house, but I didn't own one, that doesn't make sense. There has to be something there, and the only thing is the gospel. And the reason why I'm, I'm just, I really want to like punch this in is because I think in our reconstructing, we often make the path harder for ourselves. Sometimes I think we shoot ourselves in the foot. And here's, here, here's what I mean by that. I think a lot of us, when we reconstruct, we start off on step like Z instead of A. We start with what's going on right now, what's happening in the world right now, what's happening in my life right now. And we try to reconstruct from that place. So for example, hot button theological issues. You know, Roe v. Wade is all over the news and some of us are freaking out, some of us are happy, some of us are mixed. And we start with that. Do I, okay, so Christians vote this way on abortion. Do I believe in, in that anymore? Do I want to be a part of church anymore? So we're starting as down the road as, a point, as, a, as opposed to step one. Something like, you know, same-sex marriage comes up or, or, or racism and sexism in the country, in the world, even in the church. And we'll start with that and we're like, oh my gosh, there were all these Christians who were holding like Jesus flags storming the Capitol and we start there and then we think, do I believe in God? So let me put this very delicately and sensitively. I'm gonna read this just so that all of you understand what I'm saying. Those questions are very important to your life and I'm not saying ignore them. They're very, very important to your life, but they are secondary to the centrality of your faith. If you are wrestling with those things and that's making you reconstruct faith, then let me humbly ask you, we'll definitely get to those things, but we need to take some steps backwards. We need to start with whether we truly believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to ask ourselves, do I believe that there was a virgin girl who gave birth in, in Israel many years ago? She was a virgin and somehow she conceived and she gave birth. And that person grew up and his name was Jesus and he literally walked around this planet. He performed miracles that have never been done or seen in this world before. He said he was God. And then he died on the cross, and three days later, not just one person, many people saw him in the flesh. Some people touched him and ate with him, and he proved, I am God. And then a bunch of people saw him ascend into heaven, and they went around telling people that. Not everyone believed them, but millions and millions of people ended up getting saved, and that's why across an ocean, people who do not look anything like his original audience keep getting saved and it's spreading. Do you really believe that? Everything hinges on that. Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He, he says this a lot in messages, but he tweeted it one, uh, one morning. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? 
The issue which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Now, now this tweet is specific to Jesus' teaching, but really it's about everything pertaining to Jesus. It's his teaching, of course, and following his word, but it's trusting him, placing your faith in him, following him, loving him. If he really rose from the dead, then we can do all of that with confidence, no matter how crazy life is. But if he didn't, then we're wasting our time. We're wasting our energy stressing out about, oh, like, you know, what about this hot button issue that the church believes? Am I okay with that? That's a waste of your energy. How do I reconstruct my faith? And it's so difficult. That's a waste of our time. But if he did, if he did, it transforms everything. See, our faith does not and cannot, it will not last if it stands upon whether or not we understand everything in the Bible, like everything in the Bible, agree with everything in the Bible, tolerate everything in the Bible, or in our lives, like everything that happened to me, understand why things are happening to me, get clarity from God about why that happened to me. Our faith can only stand on this message. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus reigns and he promises to come again. So if we're going to talk about reconstructing faith, I need to ask that question. What is your faith standing on? Is it on life circumstances or complicated theology? Or does it stand on, I have a billion questions, but I know with all my heart that Jesus is my Savior and Lord. As many of you know, Massachusetts and Boston are old, right? Like, one of the first states, so a lot of things are old. Most of you who are not from here complain about, why do the streets not make sense? It's because they're old. It's not a grid like New York City. It's windy and you get lost, and even Google Maps doesn't know how to bring you around. It's because the streets are made for horses, not for cars and streetlights. We're an old, old place. And lately, I've been taking my son on walks around the neighborhood every day. And in my neighborhood, like, a lot of the homes have these plaques. They're maybe like this big near their front door, kind of near, you know, front door and then the number of the house, and then there's a plaque that says when the house was built. And I've noticed that most of them are in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So one of my neighbor's house was built 1892, 1889, 1902, super duper old. And my house too. We don't actually know the exact day when it was built, but it's very likely that somewhere around 1890, my house was built, if you believe it. This means my house was built before Henry Ford released the Model T, because that was 1908. My house was built when there were only 45 states. Isn't that crazy to think about? My house was built only like 30 years after the Civil War. So I'm like walking Judah around the neighborhood, I'm like, man, what was happening back then? Like, how much has the world changed since these homes were built and they're still standing today? See, the homes back then, which I'm just going to sound like an old-timer, they were just built right back then, you know, like, they, they just had strong foundations and proper bones, like, they weren't rushed and, like, compromised, and this developer just quickly cookie-cutter houses that end up, you know, tearing down in 30 years. They were built to last because they were strong, strong foundations, and the structure stands for generations on end. Think about it. The Model T was built, released after my house, and today we have Teslas. 
My house was built, and after my house was built came Utah, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona, Alaska, and Hawaii. Get this, my house has been around for 12 pandemics. Isn't that crazy? It's lasting only because the foundation is strong. Similarly, our faith can last forever till you die, and by the way, it's gonna go on from there. Despite the changing world, despite the failures and the sin of people that discourage you, despite the ugly, disgusting headlines on the front of the newspaper, if and only if it is based upon the strong foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that and only that. So Cornerstone, if you're reconstructing your faith and figuring it out, like Pastor Bill's been saying this past two weeks, adding things that weren't there, removing things that were, you know, hitting the reset button, whatever it is, whether it's this passage or a different one, start with the gospel being preached to you. Ask yourself, do I believe this with every part of my heart? Because this is my first encouragement for us today. Our faith must stand on the foundation of the gospel, and if it's on anything else, it won't last. It's not going to see cars after cars. My house is going to be there when there's flying cars outside. I guess they were just really good at that back in the day. But if it weren't, one bad blizzard, it's gone. Is my faith standing on the beliefs just my parents just you know, kind of placed on me? Is it because all my friends are Christians and I just kind of went with the flow? What is your faith standing on? For many of us right now, it's really hinged. I didn't use the examples just randomly. It's really hinged on what you see on the news. Again, those things matter. They absolutely matter. I'm not downplaying or saying you should push it aside. No, engage with it but not in reconstruction. Your faith can only be built back up into a strong tower if the foundation, the base of it, is Jesus died, Jesus rose, and I know he's coming again. Now that doesn't solve everything necessarily, right? Maybe many of us, you keep showing up because you do believe that. Pastor Danny, yes, I believe it. I believe it with all my heart. Jesus died, he rose, he's reigning, he's coming again. But that doesn't make my day-to-day any easier. That doesn't help me with the stress and the anxiety, the pain and the suffering, the tears that I'm dealing with day-to-day. It's hard to live this life. How do I deal with suffering? I believe it, but how do I deal with God sending people to hell if they were good? How do I deal with day-to-day someone I love experiencing a lot of pain and trauma? How do I deal with the parts of Scripture where it seems like God is really unloving? How do I deal with the fact there's so much sin and brokenness in this world and there's tons of it in the church? Yeah, I believe. But how do I deal with these things? Many of you know that, I guess, I mean... Maybe I should stop saying many of you know. A lot of you are new. Some of you know that I lost my mom to pancreatic cancer 
just a handful of years ago. And in obvious, for obvious reasons, I don't need to explain, it was and continues to be the most painful and traumatic and terrible thing that's ever happened to me by far. And some of the scars are healed and some of them are open, even years later. And just like everyone does in moments of crisis, I ask a lot of questions. Usually it's one word, why, right? When we experience a lot of pain, there's lots of whys. Why God? Why this way? What the heck is the point of this? Why allow this type of suffering? Why this way? Why this to our family? Why? None of it makes sense. Today. Like, I'm not going to, my point in bringing this story up is to say, oh, and I've found out what God did. No. I'm still asking why. I spent so many restless nights rolling around, and I still do. I still get nightmares. I'm still healing. I don't know if I'll ever will be fully. And so some people ask, like, very raw questions that I was very appreciative of. Say, how come you didn't quit your job and quit faith? How come you're not, like, super angry at God or even questioning existence? People ask me, like, how did you get through that without, like, lashing out? What allowed you to press on and keep going? How, do you, how did you not get angry at God and walk away from faith? My answer is simple. A transition happened in the middle of my grieving. That wasn't because of me. I think it was the Holy Spirit taking care of me. And this was a transition. I stopped demanding answers from God and I committed to trusting him instead. That was the transition. I figured nothing out today. But where I was able to start healing was I stopped trying to figure him out. I realized I'm a human being. I'm like an ant in my intelligence compared to the all creator. I stopped my prayers only being angry, fist-shaking questions. Give me something. And I committed to really believing in the gospel instead. See, on the side of eternity, you and I, there will be so many things that you will never get the answer to. You will never get clean resolution to. From personal things like loved ones getting sick and dying to big social things like global pandemics that wreck everything. But if we believe that Jesus died, that he rose, and that he reigns and is coming again, if we really believe that, that means this, that God orchestrated a story of redemption that involved saving enemies and sinners with the cost of his own son dying on the cross. If that's true, if that's true, my only logical conclusion can be that if he chose to display that type of sacrificial love to purchase my eternal redemption, then that is enough proof, that is enough proof for me to trust him, to be perfectly good and loving even when everything on the exterior seems like it's not the case. In all things, the painful things, the confusing things, the difficult things. And I think, 
I've concluded, and I hope that you will with me, that we have a God we can trust no matter what. Literally, no matter what. Because Jesus gave up his life and suffered so that I will never suffer. If Jesus gave up his place in heaven to walk the earth and experience what humans do, to take on flesh, right? To be God incarnate as we sing every Christmas. If Jesus humbled himself enough to save people who slapped him, mocked him, put made his scalp bleed and then made him suffer and suffocate to death. If he put himself in that place, I can trust him with anything. Our faith will be strong. 